Hey, podcast listeners. I'm excited to share that you can now support local winemakers by shopping for wine on Somley.com, where you can find over 450 Texas wineries and 80 wines available for purchase directly from each winery. If you're a Texas winery, claim your page to add photos, team members, and additional information about your winery for free. If you're a wine lover, join me in creating a free profile at Somley.com to give your favorite Texas wineries a great review. Cheers, y'all. Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news, interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you the information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thanks for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 46. Today I'm pleased to share my recent conversation with Ricky Taylor of Alta Marfa in the Texas Davis Mountains. I'm excited to give airtime to this AVA. It's so unique and it's filled with possibilities. Ricky's story of launching Alta Marfa is inspiring and he has shown so much tenacity in the process. So stay tuned for that. I also want to let you know that I'm taking a couple months off from podcasting, but I'll be back with one episode in July and another one in August, and then I'll get back to a more frequent schedule in September. This summer is a great time to catch up on any episodes that you might have missed, and I'll still be around, so please keep sending me your feedback and ideas. Whether you're a regular listener or joining for the first time, welcome to This is Texas Wine. This is the final reminder that the Wine and Food Foundation Toast of Texas is happening June 5th at Star Hill Ranch from 2 to 4.30, and here's what you need to know. There are 30 wineries currently signed up to pour for you. The event features air conditioning, and the food will be excellent. We've got barbecue and paella. As I said last time, the wineries really bring their A-game to this event, so come see what they're pouring. You can even place an order if you're inclined to make a purchase. Get your tickets now and come say hi. I've got a table there, and I'm handing out a little treat to listeners. So please get your tickets and come by. I'll also see some of you at the sold-out VIP event. Again, the event is on Sunday, June 5th at Star Hill Ranch. If you don't already have tickets, you can still get them and use the code SHELLY for $10 off the ticket price at every level. You can buy those tickets at the Wine and Food Foundation website, and I'll put the link in the show notes. It was such a fun surprise to see Pedernales CEO Julie Colkin on Good Morning America In GMA's trip to Texas, they visited Texas wine country and got a glimpse of a thriving vineyard and heard Julie talk about how Texas wineries brought people together during the pandemic by hosting virtual wine tastings. Great job, Julie. And congratulations to Eric and Sarah Wagner of Somley. You've heard their ads on this podcast, but this time they're in the news section. Somley was just profiled by the Austin Business Journal in an article called Austin startup Somley eager to disrupt wine industry. Company focuses on selling boutique Texas wines online post-pandemic. In the article, Eric says that wineries lose 50 to 80 percent of their gross margin when a wine is sold to a distributor and lands in your local grocery store. And that's why Somley saw an opportunity to create an online marketplace to sell direct to consumer. Check it out if you haven't already. Is Johnson City the new Fredericksburg? The folks at Cron.com, which is operated by the Houston Chronicle, think so. Their article in Texas Hill Country, Johnson City is the new cooler Fredericksburg. 
provides a list of what to eat, drink, and do in Johnson City. Just three wineries are mentioned, Croson, The Parlor, which is the tasting room for Southhold Farm and Cellars, and Lewis Wines. While you're in Johnson City, don't stop there. There are several additional wineries that you should check out, like Farmhouse, Ron Yates, West Cave, and several more. Houstonia website published an article on how to spend the perfect weekend in Lubbock. The wine section of the article mentioned that Texas is the fifth largest wine-producing state. Then it boldly goes on to say, quote, There's a buzz around Texas wine being from the hill country. Meanwhile, the high plains do all of the dirty work. While visiting these high plains vineyards and cellars, you'll notice a sense of collaboration and support rather than competition, end quote. Hey, I'm fully in support of our Texas grape growers in the High Plains and recognize the significant dirty work that farming requires, but honestly, this line just rubbed me the wrong way. I'm glad that High Plains farmers and wineries are collaborative, but I suspect that it's the same across most of the Texas wine industry and in all corners of the state. Vinepair.com asked eight sommeliers, what's the most underrated American wine region? And sommelier John McDaniel called out Texas. He said, and I quote, Having been fortunate enough to travel to all of the major and many minor wine regions in the U.S., I would say that the high plains of Texas would be the top of my list of underappreciated wine regions. Texas has a long history of producing wine, but there are some really incredible world-class producers that are crafting wines that deserve attention. William Chris Vineyards and High makes one of my favorite Morvedras in the world. Move over, Bandol. Also, Lost Jaw Cellars in Fredericksburg produces a single vineyard Senso that is just, whoa. Fly to Austin, drive an hour or so, and go drink these wines. John is the sommelier owner and CEO of Second City Soil in Chicago. You may have noticed in the quote that the region he names is High Plains, but then he encourages a visit to the Hill Country. I'm surprised that the editors didn't catch that. And no, I'm definitely not trying to add to the High Plains versus Hill Country rivalry. Not going there. The Dallas Morning News published a long article called $13 Billion Boom, Why Texas Wine is Entering Its Best Era Yet. New wineries, incubators, and promising grape varieties are fueling a golden age. Tina Danzi writes about the increase in awards Texas wines have won at prestigious wine competitions the new wine labeling law, winery incubators, grape variety selection, and expanded selection of Texas sparkling wine and new wineries. Not only that, an additional article highlights 25 Texas wines to try in summer 2022. She divides her selections into categories, including eight single vineyard wines, seven wines using new grape varieties, although they're not actually new, they're just new to Texas vineyards, things like Geraldo. And other categories include three miracle wines that defy climate change and seven bubblies. Remember me talking about the other Texas wine documentary, the short film out on the film festival circuit? Well, it's been getting a lot of attention. Robert Burks is the man behind the camera, and Wine Spectator just noted that the film appeared in Austin's Screen ATX Festival. It's also available online for free, and I'll link to it in the show notes. I should admit that an interview with Robert was the first interview I ever did for the podcast. It just never made it onto an episode. At the time, I wasn't sure what the future might be for this film, but now I'm so glad to see that it's been very well received. Congratulations, Robert. And on a related note, it seems like any national attention Texas wine gets brings about a good amount of Texas wine haters. Hey, if you can't find some wine you like in Texas, you aren't trying very hard. 
I get into this discussion a little more with Ricky Taylor during the interview, so stay tuned for that. Wineries have hopefully heard by now that Texas Monthly has issued a call for entries to be considered for the 2022 Texas Vintners Cup. They're trying to determine the ultimate case of Texas wine. The entries will be tasted blind and judged on aroma, palate, structure, balance, and finish. Judges are writer Jessica Dufuy and master sommeliers Jack Mason and Craig Collins. Wineries should get entries in by July 1st. Hey, Jessica, can I come too? Find links to enter and all of these stories in the show notes at thisistexaswine.com. Oh, and don't forget that Central Market is having a Texas wine sale May 18th to 31st. Their website says they're really into Texas. So go load up on Texas wine. And that's the Texas Wine News. My newsletter subscribers get to hear behind-the-scenes stories of putting out a Texas wine podcast. The newsletter includes my latest wine experiences and some favorite wines that I don't have time to talk about on the show. They'll also get some fun freebies, and of course it's all free. This summer I'm going to be doing quite a bit of traveling, and as I mentioned, we'll release podcasts on a limited basis. But subscribing to the newsletter means that you're still in the loop. I'll be sending out regular newsletters that include my travels in Texas and beyond. To sign up for the podcast newsletter, visit thisistexaswine.com, then click Newsletter Sign Up. And now for our interview. Ricky Taylor of Altamarfa has a thing or two to say about growing grapes and making wine. He and his wife Katie have been on an epic grape-growing and winemaking journey. We first met years ago, and when he mentioned that he was planting a vineyard in the Texas Davis Mountains AVA, I had no earthly idea where he was talking about. If that AVA is new to you, too, we're talking about the Big Bend region in far west Texas. Ricky has a thoughtfully written and photographed blog, a huge following on social media, and a wine brand with a ton of appeal. He has a strong point of view when it comes to winemaking and making wines that taste like they're from a certain place. I've been enjoying tasting through his lineup of new releases, and he's helping me to understand and appreciate natural wine. Here's our conversation. Ricky, I think you're the first person from far west Texas that I've had on the podcast, so I'm glad to have you here today. I don't know if you remember, but we met very briefly at Texom, I think in 2018. I do remember. Yeah, Texom is is uh, hard to forget. It's a, it's a long day, but I do remember meeting you. I think I was too shy to talk to very many people, so the people I did meet definitely stand out. <laughs> Well, I recognized you as a fellow Texan somehow. I'm not sure how that came about, but I think we were in a session together and you told me that you were going to be or had just planted grapes out in far west Texas. And I was curious about that because, frankly, I had never given much thought to grape growing out in far west Texas. So I know there's been a lot of time that's passed and a lot has happened from 2018 to now. You've had some high highs and maybe some low lows. So do you want to give me the high points of your story? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So that that Texom 2018 um, was just a month after we planted our first 6,000 vines, um, which I would say during that planting process was definitely a high point. We'd been working since 2016 to purchase land, drill a well, put up a deer fence, build an irrigation system, figure out how to dig 6,000 holes, do all of that stuff. 
Um, and we had about 50, 50 something people come out in one weekend and help us plant 6,000 vines by hand, which was it's a lot, especially considering how rocky it is here. Um, but I think by, so that was a high point that was in April. And then by the time we got to Texom, I think we were in more of a low point because none of those vines had grown at all or sprouted. They were dormant bench grafts that just never showed any green leaves or shoots. So that was, you know, not what we were shooting for. Uh, you know, uh, what ended up happening though, about a month after Texom is that we heard from the nursery in California that called us up and said, uh, have you had an issue with your vines? And we're like, yeah. And they said, oh, well, we had we had an issue, so we're going to go ahead and pay for those, and we'll replace them for next season, um, which is obviously disappointing because we did a lot of work and all these people come out there. But it was also a relief that it just wasn't us that had sure. done it wrong. And um, it wasn't and your site necessarily either. Yes, it wasn't the site. It wasn't our fault. And then also just that we were going to be getting – you know, they're $25,000 worth of vines replaced and not have to pay for that. So tell me a little bit about the site before you continue so people can kind of get a sense of what it's like where you planted. Definitely. So we are in the Texas Davis Mountains AVA. Uh, we're at 5,400 feet above sea level. So, you know, basically higher than every every vineyard in Europe, every vineyard in California, by California, like by a lot. Europe, most of Europe by a lot. There's a few few that sort of start to near that in like Sicily and things like that. But um, it's all volcanic soil. The Davis Mountains is formed by vol- volcanic activity. Um, extremely rocky. We're on the side of a, the sort of the base of a hill. And all of the soil is erosion coming down the side of the hill over, you know, a long period of time. So we have pretty deep. I've only... We dug a soil trench once. It was about six feet deep and didn't hit bedrock. And we have pretty, you know, good mix of everything from like clay to gravel to cobbles to boulders all the way down six feet, um, which means the soil drains extremely well, uh, which I think long term bodes really well. In the short term, it means that establishing vines is pretty challenging because the water just kind of goes in and out of the root zone very quickly. Um, and I guess the, the last thing about the site is just that's the reason why we're out here in, in West Texas. Um, I, in 2015, had sort of idea that I was maybe interested in trying to plant a vineyard in Texas somewhere. And I thought Texas is so big and has so many different places that there must be some place that strikes my fancy and that's what I'm interested in so I actually googled where is the coolest weather in the summer in Texas Um, at that point my experience had just been with the hill country which as you know is very very hot and humid in the summer so the Texas Davis Mountains is is that place that's what where Google told me to go and you were living in Houston at the time I understand and so you're commuting out there for quite some time Yes. Yeah. So my wife and I were living in Houston, both working full time, not doing wine things. And we, for a good, between the sort of first and second plantings were, it was, it was every single weekend for like 18 months. And we were flying, flying from Houston to Midland and then driving three hours from Midland on like a Thursday or Friday night and then going back on Sunday. 
So, mm, so wow. it, it, it sounds, it sounds, I mean, it is sort of crazy, but it, it was very fun. Um, at that point, we also, it, there was no timeline on this business wise. It was sort of like, this is a project we're working on for the very long term. There's no, we hadn't made any wine. There was no um, plans to build a winery or anything like that on any sort of time. It was sort of like in whenever that happens, it happens. But for now, we're just having fun and, and going out to a super beautiful place. And sort of, we basically spent all those weekends camping at the vineyard. Um, and yeah, it was, it was fun. That sounds fun. Simpler, what wine simpler were you times drinking as, as you were doing all that? What wine were you taking with you out there or purchasing there? Um, so we, a lot of the time would be actually drinking a lot more wine at home in Houston. Um, sort of more diverse, interesting things. We, uh, right around the time we decided to plant the vineyard, bought a house in Houston and had three or so roommates there is a three bedroom house. So we had five or six people living there at all times. And my wife, Katie is a, a chef. So she's constantly cooking big dinners for people, which means we get to open a bunch of wine because we have five or six people instead of just two of us. Um, but when we came out here, it was much more of like, you know, Lone Star and, and that kind of thing. Camping, <laughs> camping things. Not yeah, that we never it. had wine, but Yeah. The things you want after you've been digging holes all day. Right, I bet. Well, okay, so the nursery called and was going to replace your vines the next year. And so now we're in 2019, spring? Right. Yeah, so 2019, we do the same, plant the same 6,000 vines. This time we split it into four consecutive weekends in April to make it a little more manageable, but still had people coming out. You know, we had friends and family coming out from around the country. We had people from the internet who had come across the blog and were interested to come help. And we, we made a lot of, a lot of friends in those two years, actually, that we still, you know, see and talk to, which is really fun. Um, but that second year, 2019, we planted the 6,000 vines and had about 90% success rate. Uh, so again, a little co- confidence boost. I think us and our roommates who were there out a lot, uh, who we live with in Houston is like the the month or so after planting, we went out and saw all the little green shoots is like, we're all crying in the, in the vineyard and just, you know, I especially bet. after the year before. So it was, yeah. Sure. So we, at that point had a, had a vineyard technically there, there were lots of great vines. Um, and also in 2019, we got a chance to make our first wine, which was sort of a, uh, not a planned thing. We weren't looking to start that, part of the process at that point, but we sort of through a sort of happenstance got an offer to buy a little bit of Tempranillo from Robert Clay Vineyards in Mason. Uh, I know you were just there. I was. I'm sure I'm sure you had a great time. I, yeah. They are, uh, Dan and Jeannie and Blake do an amazing job, both growing grapes and making the wine and just, you know, they're super nice as well. We actually mm-hmm. made, so we bought, but uh, I think it was like half half a ton, maybe a little more than half a ton of Tempranillo and made a wine called Laser Cat. There were 10 cases. This was like a one thirty gallon barrel that we hand bottled with a, you know, plastic tube. Um, and we sold that wine in like four or five restaurants in Houston and Austin in the fall. It was like two months from 
completing fermentation to being in the bottle to it all being gone. Um, and that was really, really fun. That was when we first got to know Dan because he, he was, you know, Dan's extremely generous and let us make, make the wine at his winery. And we sort of started getting to know each other because I wanted to make a rosé. I wanted to, you know, my thing initially, which I even more believe in now is it's hot in Texas. It's very hot. You know, the wines that I want to drink, whether I'm Houston or here or whatever, you know, with, with the exception of the, you know, 14 days of winter is white wine for the most part, rosé, like things with high acid that are refreshing. Um, so that's what I was going for. And I, I would talk to Dan, we're about halfway through Verasion on the Tempranillo that first year. And I said, okay, let's pick it. Like the acid is, is where I want it to be. Um, and he was like, half of it's green, <laughs> you know, it's not even, uh, you know, it's, it's, but, but he said, okay, yeah, whatever, we'll do it. Um, and I think it was when we were, it was direct pressed. Um, so we're pressing it and the juice is coming out of the press and it's like neon pink, uh, like strawberry lemonade. And we were just drinking it. And he was sort of like, oh, okay, I think, I think we're, we're onto something. Um, I guess I should mention, so again, picking super early for that acid, uh, we do not acidify our wines. Um, so the, the main lever we're pulling is, is when to, uh, when we pick. So that's, that's and you already of, were, were, um, kind of set in how you wanted to farm and what kind of grapes you were looking for prior to running into Dan and talking with him about how he farms. Um, yeah, well, that's how Dan and I originally got acquainted as I was following him on Instagram and he, still is. And at that time, even more so was sort of a leader in people trying to push the envelope in Texas farming in terms of like, uh, more organic farming, um, which is something I was interested in because of lots of reasons, but mostly because of a lot of the wines I like to drink from all over the world. My favorite ones are from, you know, vineyards that are farmed that way. Um, yeah, so it was. I, I kind of knew I, I was interested in that, and obviously going in, I, I knew so little about farming, about vineyards, about anything that I I knew I was interested in going in that direction, but didn't have a lot of the details and the circumstances. Which, you know, working with Dan for the past now, this will be our fourth fourth harvest at, okay. with Robert Clayfruit. Um, I've learned a huge amount from from you know getting to watch what he does. So. Cool. So there wasn't much laser cat made. I saw a picture on your blog that said all of it fit in the back of your SUV, yes. I believe. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or, there were, or there maybe were even a smaller car. <laughs> 10, 10 cases only. We, you know, drove it from the winery and dropped it off at all the places that bought it in one afternoon. And that was it. So. And what kind have, of reception did you get? I think people really liked it. I mean, the label's kind of silly. It's sort of like cartoon-like. Um, me and, uh, or former roommate Paulina made this label in PowerPoint uh, on the computer. And it's, it's, it, it, I think I would, I was happy because never having never made wine before, I was glad that it, it fulfilled the role I was envisioning for it. Meaning that it was super crisp, you know, light, had high acid, you know, it was super clean, refreshing. And, and that's what I wanted it to be. So I, I was very happy with, with how it turned out. Yeah. And then in 2020, you took kind of a 
slightly larger jump into winemaking with some additional vineyard sources? Yeah. Yeah. So 2020, um, we, we got Tempranillo from Robert Clay again, but more this time. Um, and then we added a second vineyard, which is the Forbidden Desert Vineyard. It's near Truth or Consequences, New Mexico, um, which is about four hours from where our winery now is in, in or the vineyard is in Marfa. So it, that vineyard is actually closer to us than Robert Clay is. Robert Clay is about five and a half, six hours. So um, that vineyard is just really, that was another Instagram introduction and then say, oh, can we buy some fruit? It's a very big vineyard. I think it's about 80 acres now. Uh, it was planted in the early 1980s, own rooted vines in sand, essentially. Um, it's a beautiful it, vineyard. I saw the picture on your website and wow. I yeah. can see why you were uh, thinking that, that might, those grapes may make some great wine. There's there's not a lot of vineyards like that anywhere, let alone around, you know in Texas and, and New Mexico. So it, we're very lucky to, to get to buy those grapes. Um, so 2020, we made Tempranillo again, but this time with a little twist that because it, there was some rain issues, we ended up picking it. It was very, very early, too much acid. Um, but then sort of the idea was, okay, well, let's just use this as a base wine for a sparkling wine. And we ended up taraging that with juice from the 2021 vintage of Tempranillo and then fermenting it in the bottle and doing like a sort of traditional ish method version of that. So it's, it was very much like the original laser cat, I think better, um, but in the same vein. Um, and then we did from the forbidden desert vineyard, a Chardonnay, a Chenin Blanc, and then a blend of those two grapes uh, that stayed with the skins for six months. Um, so we did four wines that have been released from 2020. So we went from one wine, 10 cases, to four wines. It's about 250 cases. We actually did a fifth wine, which is that Tempranillo that we picked very, very early. I separated out all the green, totally green clusters and pressed and fermented them separately and then ended up fortifying that with some barrel-aged brandy made from grapes from Robert Clay Vineyards and sweetening with Tempranillo juice from the next year. So that's going to be sort of a Madeira-style wine uh, in the future, sort of like Circeal Madeira. Oh, interesting. At um, Robert Clay Vineyards, I tasted some Madeira style. Oh, did you try Dan's Madeira? Yeah. Yeah. That, those wines are awesome. very, very, very special. Yeah, for sure. Back to the New Mexico vineyard for a second. How much does that complicate your life and business to make wine with two different state labels? Yeah, it's actually not any, there's no added complication. Um, because we are, like, obviously, uh, out-of-state fruit in Texas has been a, a big issue, and rightfully so. Um, but we are labeling those wines as New Mexico wines. Um, so there's no additional paperwork. We just fill out that the state is New Mexico instead of Texas. So yeah, it's, it's not really, not really an issue. Um, and, and it being actually closer than now that we're this season going to make wine here in West Texas, it's actually closer than a lot of the fruit that we buy. So it's more convenient actually. For your transportation expert, who is also you. Yes. Yes. I, yeah, put a lot of, a lot of miles on the truck and the trailer. I think I did nine, 9,000 miles during two weeks of harvest last year. 
Oh my goodness. A lot of that was with, with fermenting tanks on the trailer while driving. And hopefully perfect temperature conditions, right? Yeah. Well, I did, I intentionally did almost basically all of that driving at night for that reason. Uh, Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, I have a question or two about your vineyard that Mm -hmm. you personally own and have planted. So 6,000 vines. uh, I read that your spacing changed from the first planting to the second. Right. Tell me about spacing and why that's important and how much in terms of acreage does 6,000 vines span? So the initial idea was that we had about a three acre spot fenced, um, high fenced. And that ends up being like when you make room for various things in there that are where there won't be vines. Um, there's a bunch of sort of boulder outcroppings and we have a little platform where you had a tent set up and different things. It's about two and a half acres planted. Um, so the original spacing was four feet by five feet, which is for Texas, extremely tight spacing. Uh, it, I mean, I don't know that it is, but I would guess that that was the tightest planted vineyard in Texas at that time. I mean, just because there's not many reasons why you would do that, except for the reason we we did, which was, was on the side of a hill. It's very steep and rocky. We didn't have a tractor uh, and had no sort of money to get one. And you would have to have a sort of very, very serious one on the side of that hill. Um, so it was sort of like, well, we have this area. We might as well fit as many vines as we can into it is what I thought at the time. Um we have changed the spacing starting last year to 10 feet by 10 feet. We're sort of re- replanting different spacing, different vines, different, all different stuff. We've le- like learned, learned a few things in the last five years still feels like we don't know a lot, but we've, we've learned a few things. Um, and I think spacing is generally thought of as important, at least for me, when I w- would read books and things, everyone's always talking about spacing in terms of, vine competition right um which to be honest i think is sort of the the last thing on the list in terms of why spacing is important at least for our project i think what the most the most important thing that i sort of decided was so when you go from four feet by five feet in this spot to 10 by 10 you go from six thousand vines to one thousand vines in the same area and my thinking as of last year is that if we reduce the number of vines, two things happen. One is you have, so 6,000 vines to 1,000, you now have six times as much irrigation water per vine. And you have six times as much attention from me or Katie or whoever pruning or doing any sort of mulching or hoeing or weeding or whatever. Um, so I think that that was the main motivation for switching the spacing. The other thing that I've learned more about in the last year or so is that vines, um, and I know people, especially in Oregon, have done a bunch of experiments with different spacing in the same vineyard as, and and sort of compared disease pressure. And vines, like people, have more disease issues when they're crammed into really tight spaces together. Um, you have better airflow when vines are f- further apart. So you're reducing fungal pressure. You have more sun 
on all sides of the vine when the vines are further apart you have less likely transmission of like uh not that i don't i don't think we really are at much risk of this but say something like cotton root rot or something that's like soil borne like root to root vines are further apart etc mm-hmm. um so that's that's sort of the idea and then i think the other thing is sort of like on a vineyard this small especially when you have limited very limited irrigation i think in 15 years we'll have basically the same yield from the vineyard with less vines because the vines will just be a lot bigger and more healthy more mm-hmm. attention from us more water all these things so I think I think by having less vines, we'll actually end up with more fruit. Which so are you fully planted? Your two and a half acres is fully planted no. now. No, so this transition of switching all this stuff. So we switched the spacing last year. I planted about sixty vines as a test, like replanted them, um, and then this year I have about three hundred more. So it's going to be another few years of just replanting in this new scheme. Okay. Um, but so we switched also to planting own rooted vines versus grafted. Um, the reason for that is our site is extremely low vigor. There's almost no organic matter in the soil. It's a desert. There's not a lot of water. It drains super well. And at least so far, I found that the own rooted vines are just way, way, way more vigorous um, than the grafted vines. And then we also switched from planting sort of Bordeaux varieties to uh portuguese red varieties like a field blend of portuguese red varieties and i think someone who knows a lot more than me please tell me if i'm incorrect in saying this uh but a lot of those bordeaux varieties that are you know have been in nurseries and been had that treatment for a really long time are kind of intentionally devigorated whether it be with the rootstock or the clones themselves searching for quality um and we need the opposite of that. It's like we have vines that are four years old from the first planting that did survive that are smaller than the vines I planted last year of the Portuguese unrooted ones. On their own roots, huh? Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. Above my um, knowledge level for sure, but super interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and a lot of this stuff that I'm saying is sort of just, it's my working hypothesis and and, and just sort of in pursuit of what's going to work in, in our spot. Um but the difference in just looking at the vines last year with the own rooted Portuguese reds, they were six feet tall by the end of the season. Whereas, like I said, that we had 2018 vines that were had six or eight inch shoots. It's a combination of factors, but better results. When do you expect your first uh, harvest? Or, um, I mean, I know you've got different age things interspersed, yeah. but. I, I, I anticipate that we'll probably get some like not full production, but some fruit in like two or three years. Uh, I would be, I would be very happy with that timeline. Um, so a lot of, a lot of things to work out between like figuring out how to get some sort of like hail netting yeah, and just finishing planting the rest of the vines and all these things. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd like two or three years would be great. You guys have done a lot of the work yourselves and you have a strong group of friends and family that have been pitching in and you've been really honest, 
both on this conversation and on your blog, just about the the things that you're learning, the mistakes you've made. Do you think that that's made an impact on the response you've gotten from consumers? Um, I definitely think so. I hope so. Um, I think my goal from the beginning with what kind of wine we're making to how we're doing farming to how I'm writing that blog on the website or doing Instagram is to basically do all of those things the way I would want to experience it as a consumer. Cause that's, that's how I started out as a consumer of wine. And that's what I'm interested in is, is seeing the real story to me. The truth is always more interesting than the sort of like uh, tall tale version, which, you know, again, this is just a personal preference that that's what I like as a consumer, but the wine industry is very, very full of the sort of, were very, very romanticized, polished version of, of the story, which which a lot of people like and can be really fun. Um, but it also it's it's sort of a if if you're if you have a story that's based around tradition and legacy and all this stuff that wine industry really likes to include then then use that because that's that's authentic and that's the truth but coming from our position there's no tradition here there's no either in this place or like in our family or whatever so i just wanted to tell tell the story the way the way it feels to me and i think people really have appreciated that i mean i'm sure there are people who have not um but that's fine they should buy a different wine then that you know that's not Every story should not appeal to everyone, I think. Sure. Well, the wine industry as a whole has had such a hard time connecting with younger consumers who are more interested in the stories behind the products, and they don't want just a glossy, perfect-looking, you know, Mm -hmm. fake persona. They want to know the real truth behind, um, you know, they appreciate your labels, I'm sure, that tell the vineyard names and the counties and the grape varieties. And I, I have a feeling, although I don't have any statistics to back this up, that the natural wine movement is more appealing to younger consumers. Recently on the podcast, I interviewed uh, Regan Metter about yeah. from Southhold Farm and Cellars, and I think he's not quite comfortable being you know labeled as part of the natural wine scene or zero zero non interventionalist. But where do you see yourself kind of on the spectrum of winemaking style? Um, so the way, the way I like first and foremost address that is, is again, with just transparency. Um, I think, so we have Katie, my, my wife just redid our whole website. Um, and we have really nice tech sheets on all the wines that says, it says everything about how the vineyard is, you know, this one is sort of like the New Mexico vineyard. That's, you know, pretty much organic. And then other vineyards that are not. And there's even a couple that are not even really interested in that. Um, I think, you know, in the long term, people that aren't interested in all, we probably will not work with. Um, But so from the vineyard to the winemaking, as far as like, you know, people get really caught up and this is starting to change luckily, but with like, how much sulfur did you add? And a lot of things that in my mind, like don't actually matter. It's sort of like, uh, it's data. Those are data, but, but out of context, don't really tell any story. Um, whereas for example, all of our wines are, uh, spontaneously fermented, meaning we're not adding yeast. 
and all of the wines are not acidified. And as more of a stylistic thing, I do not generally like wines that are super oaky just as a wine drinker. So we like, don't really do that. Um, other than that, that's, and, and all of those things are in pursuit of just, I want to make the type of wine that I like drinking. I want it to be delicious. And on top of that, I want it to be, this is something I've thought about a lot. I want wine that's delicious to people who don't really say, for instance, have never had wine before. I think so much of wine, even really good wine, can be sort of an acquired taste mm-hmm. where the more you learn about it and the more times you try it and you have it explained to you, you say, okay, I do like this. I appreciate it. But the first time you try it, a lot of people are sort of like, I don't, I don't know. This is not. Yeah, is it supposed the... to burn as it goes down my throat? Yes, exactly. And my cheek's supposed to be raw. And... Exactly. So I think, you know, I think I, I think it's much more interesting to make wine that is is first and foremost delicious before it is serious in some way and wines can be serious in a lot of ways between like the story it's age it's all these things which are all interesting and good but i think a lot of times there are there's a lot of wine out there that those things come first and it's delicious third or fourth um which to me the how delicious it is 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 the fun part um but but back to your original question it's, it has to be in context. People will say like, is this natural wine? And I'll ask them, are you asking because you want natural wine? And you, and you somehow like, why do you want that? Uh, do you, you know, or are you asking that because you don't know what natural wine is and you want me to sort of explain what I think it is or because there's all these things of just saying, and I think I would guess this is why Regan, which I, I can relate to, kind of shies away from that is if you say we make natural wine, that means so many things. It means to each person, it means something different. And that just sort of, uh, it becomes half the people are going to get the wrong idea, basically. Sure. Um, but there's a lot of times when it does, it is a useful term because people just are sort of saying like, if, if they're asking me that question because they want to know, they like the way natural wine tastes, our wine tastes like natural wine, meaning that it's lower alcohol, it's high acid, it's not oaky. It, you know, it like, so if someone's looking for wine that tastes natural in that way, then, then I'll say, yes, this is absolutely what you're looking for. You should get this. And um, it's unfiltered generally? Yes. Yeah. So we do not filter either. Um I think that's more out of just, uh, I think people filter wines for two reasons. One is uh, to make them stable microbially. And the other reason is to make them look a certain way in terms of how transparent and sort of sparkly they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And and I are the, w- the way we make our wines is like, they're either going to be stable or not. If, like my goal is to have them be stable without being filtered. And then as far as it being clear versus cloudy, that's not something I care about. Um, I have no problem if a, if a white wine is not perfectly clear. And again, that's just a, a personal preference. If people are off put by that, then that's fine. They should drink different wine. <laughs> you have been going to a lot of these natural wine festivals out of state. And I'm guessing a lot of people there may have not ever had Texas wine before. And I wonder... 
if they're um, curious about Texas wine, what misperceptions they may have about Texas wine, and just what your reception has been there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say a lot of people have not had any, or they've had one wine from Texas ever. And it was a long time ago and they don't, you know, it's, it's a mystery. I would describe it as that to most people outside of Texas. It is very much a mystery. Um, I think people are really curious, especially on the East coast. I think the West coast is a lot less interested. Um, but I think it's because on the East coast, you have places like North Carolina and Vermont that have sort of and Long Island for that matter. And the finger, like people are more used to wine from less traditional places um, so like I, I was just in New York yesterday. Um, we just started, we're going to start distribution in New York city very soon, which I'm really excited about. And we went to a festival there in Brooklyn in October and had a, a, you know, six or seven distributors give us their card and say, you know, we are really excited about this. We'd love to represent you in New York, which to me, that that's the biggest compliment because it, it doesn't even necessarily means like the wine's amazing or it's not, but it, to me, it means the wine is good enough that they think they can sell it, which is important, very important. And, and they're interested because that's the thing. Is they, I, they anticipate people are going to be interested in purchasing it. Exactly. Exactly. So that, that was really, really encouraging. Um, and yeah, well, I think, you know, in a month we'll probably have wine there. That's cool. And you also have canned wine. I want to be sure and mention the cans. Yes, we do have, we have two cans. That was an experiment this year for the first time. And it's been, you know, the process of canning and doing all that is, has been a big learning experience, but I think our lessons coming out of it is that there's a enormous demand for canned wine specifically in Texas. I think everywhere probably, but specifically in Texas. And we are trying to figure out how we can do that more next year and in the future definitely and be warned listeners who are drinking a 12 ounce can of wine that is a half bottle of wine <laughs> yes yes this is true um and that's a god you said that the first wine that we decided to can is only eight and a half percent alcohol um it's very strange it's sort of more like basque cider or like a sour beer or something it's sort of very hard to describe it's delicious um, but that's why we, you know, we thought about different size cans or smaller cans, but at only eight and a half percent, it's like, there's tons of IPAs and things that are in that same range, B- big, different, eight and a half is really different than 15, uh, yeah, in that I'd way. Say. So, um, I also want to talk about your labels because they are, you've, you've upgraded from the laser cat, although that was cute. Your current labels yes. are really striking. And I know that the artist is a high school friend of yours. Yeah. You want to tell me about that? Yeah. So uh, the artist's name is Alan Johnson. He goes by McIlvain. That's sort of of like uh, artist Instagram name. Um, But yeah, we actually, I think, became friends in middle school playing soccer together. And we're really close friends throughout high school. Um, And he's a, a great artist. And we also, I think, growing up together, always had, we always like did art stuff together. We like make stenciled t-shirts and draw and do all sorts of stuff. And he's like a real, a real artist. And I, I think I enjoy doing art, but don't have any sort of aspirations. So we did did that a lot together, but I think where that sort of landed us now is that our process for making all these different labels, which I think we have nine or 10 now, and we have working on like five or six new ones for wine we're about to bottle and like 
is I sort of keep a running list of phrases or like nonsense words that I just that pop into my head and I'll just send them to him without any explanation. And he'll draw something and then we'll look through them and say, oh, this one turned out good or this one is crazy or, you know, it's, so it's a very fun process coming up with them. Um, and I think, you know, my, my other thoughts on label, the art is great, but you also mentioned, so the front, the front of all the wines have a name and an image. We intentionally do not put the grape variety or anything else on the front of the label. Um, because I think, again, being in a non-traditional growing region, either like take Chardonnay, for example, we make a Chardonnay from New Mexico. Either people will see Chardonnay and say, oh, I love Chardonnay. And they're thinking of a specific idea of Chardonnay, whether that be California Chardonnay or Burgundy or whatever. And it's not, it has a lot of things in this wine has a lot of things in common with that, but it's different because it's grown in New Mexico at 4,600 feet above sea level and all these things. Or you have the opposite happen if people say, oh, I don't like Chardonnay. And they're thinking of California Chardonnay or Burgundy. So they actually, e either way, it's not giving them any useful information. So I don't want that to be the first thing that they are encountering with the front label. Um, whereas like you said, the back label, we put lots of stuff where the variety, the vineyard name, the grower, uh, the AVA and the county, because I think in Texas, we have a really, the AVA sort of aren't great in terms of there's not enough of them. So like in the High Plains, we have uh, right now three wines labeled in two different counties, I think, or something, but, but try to show more specifically where this is from. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I like the energy associated with the drawings. I like the colors and I, you know, they say natural wine has a certain energy and I think that, that your labels do too. So I, I think they're really fun. Um, you mentioned Thanks. a little bit about Texas AVAs and, and counties, and I know you've got some ideas about how Texas can maybe refine some of its marketing around more specific regional personalities. Absolutely. The, the best place to start with that is I know anyone who drinks wine in Texas or and probably all the producers who make wine in Texas have at some point had this conversation probably a bunch of times when they are at a party or somewhere and there's someone who does not live here and it comes up of like, oh, I've never had a Texas wine or I've never had wine from Texas or I had one once and I didn't like it or you know, it's sort of like the, the underlying question is, do you like Texas wine? Are you interested in Texas wine? And unfortunately, if we're using that term Texas wine, and this person has only had one wine from Texas, if they didn't like it, then the answer is no, I don't. I don't like Texas wine. I had one once, but the idea, the term impl like, implies at least to me that their uh, wines made in Texas are interchangeable. Um, and the reality is they're not, and they're not for a lot of reasons. There's not because there's hundreds of wineries and they're not because there's different styles and they're not because we have very distinct growing regions that are very far apart from each other. You know, the idea that if, if say, for example, in California, if you said to someone, oh, do you like, you know, what's, what's a good example, like Cabernet from California, you're already thinking Napa. You're not mm -hmm. thinking of. Central Valley Cabernet, 
That's not what it means. And, and that's because they've created a brand that's very, very specific to one region that's high quality. Um, and in order for us to get there in Texas is like, you know, I look forward so much to maybe in like 20 years when someone is saying like, oh, I really like Sangiovese from Terry County or even more specific from specific vineyards. But I think, you know, especially in the high plains, like it's a big place. The soil changes less drastically than the hill country, but you could say things like that. And right now, and maybe I'm just not in the know, but I'm not hearing that kind of thing. The person that I hear that most frequently from is Ray Wilson. Do you know Ray? She's the winemaker for Wine for the People. and Right. Yeah, I know of her. I've not met her yet. Yeah. And she has a project called the Grower Project that she does with Andrew Sides. Mm -hmm. And they specifically are uh, vineyard designates with the county listed. And and that's her point is that this isn't just a generic petite Syrah. It's from the specific place. And there's a certain family that grew this. Right. And that's we need more of that. That's great. That's really good. Especially, I think, unfortunately, the value in doing that kind of labeling and that kind of specificity increases exponentially the more growers and producers that use it. Because if if you're only one person doing that, it can be, it's hard to say what style and what's whatever. Whereas if you have, say, 30 producers who are all just for the sake of example, um, take so something we did in the last uh, harvest, 2021, we made a Tempranillo from the Texas Davis Mountains AVA, which is volcanic soil. We made one from near Sonora, which is on limestone. And then we made one from Robert Clay Vineyards, which is on sandstone. Uh, these vineyards are all hundreds of miles apart, same grape variety, same winemaking. And I just tasted them in barrel last week. They're going to be bottled in a month or so and they all taste very, very different, and it was, it's extremely exciting. And it's a built-in, built-in story, yeah. And it, and it sort of conjures up ideas of the future. But so, that, I'm really proud of that, and I'm super excited for people to try the wines and and see that. But what would be better than just Altamarfa doing that is what if what if there were ten producers who are all making Tempranillo from distinct regions and keeping the winemaking consistent. And then you could start to really see through lines of like, okay, it's not just Alta Marfa that has a very like red fruited, high toned, limestone driven Tempranillo from Sonora. That's a through line, whether you make it at 11.5% alcohol like ours, or if you make it at 14% alcohol. Um, unfortunately, this is where, you know, people will not want to hear this, but this is where the winemaking and more or less intervention does matter. Because if you want to know what Tempranillo tastes like from High Cross Vineyards near Sonora on Limestone, if you have it ripening on the vine until it's 26 bricks and then have to add so much acid and then water it back, how, how much of that is still there? I don't know. I mean, probably not none, but not as much as if you don't do all of those things. And, and, and new Oak is a huge part of that too, is, is you're doing all these things that are making wine more uh, anonymous, I think. And Regan, in his episode that you did with him, one of the favorite thing that I thought he said was there's wines that taste like they're from a place. And there's wines that it's like, this could be made anywhere. I can make this, this exact wine here or in California or in Oregon or whatever, and it'd be the same. 
doesn't mean it's a bad wine at all. It could be delicious, but it it's not participating in that conversation of like where in Texas should we plant more Tempranillo and where should we rip it out and plant something else in order mm-hmm. to, to make those judgments over the next 50 to hundred years, you got to know what each place tastes like. I should add, there's a fourth Tempranillo that is a blend of one barrel of each of the three. Okay. Um, so there's, it's a, a set of four. You have each of the three separately and then together. Cause again, I think blending is, you know, that's a tradition that's all over the world and in really, really, uh, respected wine places is there, you know, there's a reason to blend wine, just like there's a reason to have vineyard designated wine. So we did that as well. I do want to ask you about one of your blends, slightly non-traditional. I want to ask you about your Tempranillo Roussan blend, a 50-50 blend. My question is, is it a red wine or is it a rosé and why? That's a good question. So that wine uh, comes from Crooked Post Vineyard in the High Plains. Uh, Michael Fangman and his family are the the growers. And we made this past year, it's the f- first year working with them, 2021, and we had the opportunity to buy four tons of grapes, uh, one ton of four different varieties. Um, and I treated, decided to make two wines out of those four varieties and you mentioned one, the other one is the same idea. So I'll just talk about that one is that, um, Tempranillo ripens before Roussan and also just loses acid very quickly. Um, so the idea was we picked, we picked the two varieties on the same day, uh, with the Tempranillo being more ripe and the Roussan being less ripe. So the Roussan is supplying acid and crispness and lowering the pH of the blend. And then the Tempranillo is supplying more fruit-driven things, uh, more ripe texture, that that kind of stuff. So that that was the idea, um, was that just sort of like these two things are going to be better together than either would be separately. Um, and I think that that worked. I can't say that I was envisioning that wine the way it came out in terms of flavor and color and whatnot, um, but the goal was was achieved, which was make this wine more balanced than it would be if you didn't blend them together. Um, and in that case, we actually, so it's co-fermented, picked on the same day, both the Roussan skins and the Tempranillo skins were in the fermentation for two days and then pressed. So it's a light red, uh, but definitely a red wine, not a rosé. Um, and I think I've had rosé that almost has color that dark, but rosé to me tastes, tastes like rosé and this wine tastes like red wine. Excellent. Yeah. I was just curious about that because that was a higher percentage of a, a white uh, grape than I would have expected. But yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And it's sort of like, it's one of those wines where if you were blindfolded, you might, it would be very confusing as far as, is this a, a structured full bodied white wine or is this a lighter textural, possibly served a little chilled red wine. It's it sort of would be an interesting experiment. That would be. And I think that there are a lot of wines that probably if if they were served in a glass where you couldn't identify the color and they were at the same temperature, there are a lot of wines that you couldn't tell. It, it could be Absolutely. a light red. It could be a white with some skin contact, giving it some tannins. Definitely. That's fun, though. So bring me up to speed on the new winery in Marfa. 
Yeah. So we, it's it, very exciting to have our own winery space. We have not made wine there yet. Uh, the building was, it's a new, newly constructed building um, that was finished in December. We were hoping to make wine there last harvest, but, you know, I think we were very optimistic <laughs> in the timeline. Um, so we ended up making wine at Slate Mill Wine Collective in Fredericksburg instead, which was great. Um, anyway, so this year we are going to make wine in Marfa and it is, uh, I think going to be great. It, it saves a lot of driving. It's very simple. It's just a rectangular building that has a bathroom and has insulation and has a floor drain and a big rolling door and a giant AC unit. <laughs> so it's, it's sort of just bare bones, but I think because it's new is actually, a, you know, all those things are probably a little more reliable than a lot of places where people make wine. Um, sure. But it's more of a, it feels like a triumph because we, we spent about two or three years looking for a wine, a space to make wine out here going from, we actually had bought a lot in Fort Davis at one point and we're going to build a metal building and up getting sort of like run off by some unfriendly neighbors. At one point we we're trying to, buy a building in Alpine and it turned out the guy selling it no longer owned it. And that was really sad. And then, you know, it ended up with, there's this thing in Marfa called uh, Marfa list, which is like a private Craigslist just for Marfa. And I posted on there, we're looking for some sort of like industrial space to make wine in help, you know, and uh, the guy who owns the building now had a commercial lot and is a contractor and said, I'll just build you whatever you want and then lease it to you. So it was wow. amazing. Turned out great. We had to wait a long time, but uh, it, we're really excited to make wine there this year. And that also means you can meet people there for a tasting if they're in town. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. So I've been doing that uh, since about January of, of having tastings by appointment. You know, I think it's it's how I imagine sort of tastings happened in like the 60s and 70s in Napa of like show up to the winery and there's stuff piled everywhere and we stand at a table <laughs> and try the wines and we get to know yeah. each other. So there, if you happen to real... see my truck in the drive, come on in. Yeah. I mean, I've had people do that, too. Yeah. Knocking on the door. Exactly. So that's that's really fun. You know, we're just barely getting into that as far as how to do that the best and how to provide the best experience and then also how to not. Uh, feel like we're on call 24-7 as far as like someone wants to make an appointment, drop everything and go do that, which is just not sustainable. So we're going to figure it out. But if anyone, yeah. lis you know, listeners are coming to Marfa, you know, definitely uh, send me an email and come taste wine for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. And is Katie able to do some cool chef pairing, wine pairing dinners and events? Are you, are you working toward that? I think in the long term, we're, we're definitely exploring all those options and would love to do something like that. Um, I think we're both really excited. She's actually finishing a master's program at NYU right now, but will be graduated and done in about a month um, and is really looking forward to, as am I, sort of us doing Harvest as a team for the first time. Um, working in restaurants, you know, you don't, get time off. You don't get to take three weeks off to go do harvest or do any of this stuff. So, um, she has definitely had some, you know, felt like she was missing out the past couple of years. So we're really excited to get to do that together this year, which will be really fun. Yeah, that's nice. 
Well, I I love what you're doing. I love reading about it and seeing your lovely photos. It doesn't surprise me to hear that you enjoy doing art because you have a very artistic blog. Thanks. And I'm excited for your winery. And I'll definitely make a stop out there next time I'm in Marfa, which will Absolutely. be my first time to Marfa. I can't believe I haven't been out there, but oh, I'm planning on a trip. I know you've got a couple other vineyards um, popping up near you, including mm-hmm. the Sharps over at Sharp Family Vineyards. And yep. the, the Sharps are too. our neighbor on one side. We got Chateau Wright, our neighbor on the yep. other side. And then there's uh, Ben Calais has a new property that's our neighbor on the other side. So we're all in one, one little sort of, you know, thoroughfare, um, which is fun. It's fun to have more, more company, the better, I think. Yeah. And I imagine that's a a community of where you need each other from time to time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. If if, for nothing else for entertainment, you know, I've, I've spent so (laughs) many, so many hours just by myself at, you know, working at the vineyard and there's, Yeah, it's remote. It's very, very remote. Thanks, Ricky, for the conversation and the wine. Be sure to follow at Altamarfa on Instagram and find the blog at altamarfa.com. Next up, demerits and gold stars. If you find yourself needing a place to stay in Fredericksburg, be sure to look up Cork and Cactus, my two-king-bedroom, one-bath place less than a mile from Main Street. It's north of the Pacific War Museum, on the same side of town as a few of my favorite spots in town, like Otto's, La Bergerie Wine Bar, and the taco stand with much less fanfare, Main Street Taquitos. The house is on a corner with ranch land on two sides, so you'll get daily visits from the neighboring cows and deer. Come enjoy the Texas wine country and get away from it all at Cork and Cactus. Find us on Airbnb or book at heavenlyhosts.com. I have one gold star to share with you, and this gold star goes out to all the Texas wineries that entered wines into the Texom Awards that just concluded. There were a bunch of you who entered a bunch of wine. It seems like a record number of Texas producers, but I'm just guessing. A tremendous team of volunteers worked an unreasonable amount of hours to make sure that the wine was received, packed, transported, organized, opened, poured, tasted, judged, and recorded in a professional manner. An impressive lineup of judges had the easy job of tasting the wines. Once again, I spent my time on the Texas Wine Panel, where some really excellent Texas wines impressed some judges. But I can't say which because the results aren't out yet. I'll have more to say about my Texom volunteer experience and my observations on Texas wines that were poured there once the results have been made public. In the meantime, shout out to the extraordinary Panel 5, Patrick, Suzanne, and Tina, and to Jose, a listener of this podcast who is also volunteering that I happen to meet. Cheers to all who made it happen this year at the Texom Awards. That's it for now. Don't forget to get your tickets to Toast of Texas and keep on spreading the news about this podcast to help it grow. Get in touch. Email me at texaswinepod at gmail.com and I'm at texaswinepod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Show notes are at This Is Texas Wine and that's also where you can support the podcast and help me cover the cost of my new podcasting equipment. Thanks to Texas Wine Lover website for promotional assistance. Visit txwinelover.com to help you plan your next winery visit. I'll be back in two months with a new episode, but until then, you can catch up on all the episodes you missed. Cheers, y'all. Cheers.